Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, everybody. It's Mike. Since Gordon Lightfoot's passing at the beginning of May, the conversations that I've been having with my guests have tended to go on quite a lot. And so what I wanted to let you know is what you're about to listen to, the first half of another two-part episode. This time it's with Chris Davis from Mississippi, and he and I are going to be talking about the last time I saw her. So this is part one of two. The second part will be coming out in mid-July. In between times, I will be on vacation with my family in Florida and in the Caribbean, but I will be back to resume things right around the time the second half of this episode comes out. All right. Hope you enjoy. The first guest of the evening is truly a poet. He's an artist. He is a friend and an inspiration to anyone who I think who has ever played the guitar uh, or tried to write poetry. Would you please welcome Gordon Lightfoot? The last time I saw her face... Her eyes were bathed in starlight and her hair hung long. The last time she spoke to me, her lips were like the scented flowers inside a rain-drenched forest. This is Carefree Highway Revisited, the show that celebrates Gordon Lightfoot's music song by song, a proud member of the That's Not Canon podcast network. I'm your host, Mike Messner, and with me today is a fellow Lightfoot fan from Jackson, Mississippi, Chris Davis. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, Mike, it's a privilege. Well, the privilege is all ours. Tell us a little bit about how you first got into Gordon's music. Well, uh, I was a punk teenager. Not really much of a punk, but uh, I was a teenager in punk in terms of my dad actually bought two cassettes, Gord's Gold and Gord's Gold Volume 2, because something went off in his head and he suddenly remembered the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald uh, back in 1996. That's when he bought the cassettes. So he got them. Uh, I was a senior in high school, and it was my dad. So I thought, of course, it, it's square. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. I didn't like it. I didn't listen to it. Uh, every time he'd put them on in the car, I'd complain. Uh, then one day, my brother and I sat down, and we both listened to the cassettes end to end. And we looked at each other, and we're like, this is really good. This is good stuff. And uh, we were fans from then on out, both of us. Fantastic. Maybe your dad didn't do such a square thing then to get you <laughs> turned on to the music. What do you like about his music generally? Well, I like the incredible depth. I saw a little debate on the internet a little while back. It was saying, Gordon Lightfoot or John Denver? I'm not going to knock John Denver, but if I take somebody, anybody who even gets close to the caliber of Gordon Lightfoot is nowhere near it. Let's say James Taylor. We're going to see James Taylor next week here in Jackson. I'm excited about it. But James Taylor is just nowhere near the songwriter that Gordon Lightfoot is. The melodies, the music, and also the performance. Gordon is really a fantastic performer. You look back in the day when he had extreme control over his vibrato. That was fantastic in performance. And then you listen in the 90s 
when he lost some of that vibrato. If you listen in headphones, let's say to a painter passing through, he's still got it in there. He's still controlling that voice, even though it's a different timbre and a different tone. Up into the 2000s, after he lost a whole lot of vocal quality with the aneurysm, he's still a dynamic performer, even though it's not vocal excellence like it was. It's still great because of the kind of performance that he delivers. It's so expressive. Yeah, and you sound like someone who can appreciate good vocals and vocal music. And he certainly had a richer voice than most of his other contemporaries and an instrument that he really took care of as long as he could. And so I appreciate that about him as well. What about your experiences seeing Lightfoot live? What was the most outstanding performance you saw? Why did it stand out to you? What was the venue like, etc.? You know, I think the most outstanding performance that I saw would have to be Massey Hall in 2018. It was one of the last shows that was performed at Massey Hall before it closed down for the renovation. The song choice, the enthusiasm of the performance, and the instrumentation was great, too. I think they made some really good, stark improvements in instrumentation between the late 90s when I first saw him. My first show was 1998 in Knoxville, Tennessee. And then uh, I think between then and that show in Massey Hall, they made some improvements to the keyboard sounds. Of course, Carter Lancaster came on board and offered a new dynamic with his ES-335 Gibson that was you know, a lot different than the Terry Clements style. So when they played Too Many Clues in this room, for instance, there was uh, a little bit of bite a little bit of edge there that wasn't on the original recording. I just enjoyed the performance all the way through. The only thing I was sad about was that at that time he had quit performing Canadian Railroad Trilogy. The last time I ever heard him do that live was in 2012. But I've seen Gordon Lightfoot more than any other artist that I've seen, including Bob Dylan. I've seen Gordon Lightfoot 10 times. I've met him several times, talked to him, introduced my wife to him when she was just my fiance. I can't believe she, she's like, why, why is this guy nuts for this singer songwriter? But uh, in any case, I've just enjoyed the entire live performance experience that it's been my privilege to witness. Yeah. And you ran ahead of my next question because you actually got to meet Lightfoot, as you say, several times. I never did. Although, as I said, right after his passing, I said, I didn't know Gordon Lightfoot personally, but he knew me. And that was a tribute to the way his music spoke to me. And the experience meeting Lightfoot, everything I've heard said that he's a very gracious man. He's a very humble man. He's not full of himself. He doesn't have the rock star vibe that some others in entertainment do. Is that a sentiment that you would agree with? I would completely agree with that. The first time we met him, we didn't have backstage passes or anything. It was my entire family. I paid for the entire family seats to that uh, concert in Knoxville, and we drove there. It was, I think, at the time, a 10-hour drive. At the very end, we decided to wait around because we had had some luck doing that with the monkeys the previous year. <laughs> okay. So uh, we decided to wait around out back and see what happened. So we did, and eventually a Terry came out, and uh, he signed my Summertime Dream album, and then finally a Rick came out, and then Gordon came out, and 
Gordon was extremely gracious. It was around the time of the passing of his mother, I believe, or mm. shortly before then. And he was telling everybody who was talking to him how much, and he didn't perform the song, but he was telling them that The House You Live In was her favorite song. But I had the Summertime Dream album there for him to sign because it was white and it was that was the clearest place I could get a signature. That's what I figured anyway. So that's what he did. He flipped through the pages of the CD of the insert and said that his mother loved the house you live in. And there was a great message there and uh, that maybe we should appreciate the message. And of course, coming from the man himself, that makes you take a second and third look and listen to the song. It is one of my favorites anyway. But in any case, I was just so excited to meet him. I didn't have hardly anything to say. I mean, I was, I'm on the radio for a living and I was thinking, I'm not going to get starstruck. I don't get starstruck, but I did. <laughs> and yeah. it until the next time when I could actually talk to it. Yeah, I think about that. And I think maybe I would have had the same reaction if I got to meet him and the people that I do want to meet in the entertainment industry, particularly musicians and in very particular Stephen Stills and Graham Nash. What would I say to them? I imagine I would get completely tongue tied. Once in a while, I have to admit, I rehearse what I'm going to say, even though I probably never get a chance to deliver what is in that little speech. Well, let's talk a little bit about the last time I saw her, wanted to talk about why it was particularly meaningful to both of us. For me, this is not a song that I expected to like when I looked at the lyrics, because there wasn't a set form to it. It's written in almost entirely in blank verse, which is not usually a popular format for modern songs, but it worked so perfectly this time. And he didn't edit himself at all. I mean, this was almost stream of consciousness, and it was just so beautifully done that I was won over the first time I heard it. Why did you want to talk about it today, Chris? Well, you know, I think it's a great song. It's kind of got some metaphor with it because it evolved with the band as they evolved. The song performance, the earliest performance, I should say, that I have heard was from 1974 at Avery Fisher Hall when they had just the three of them, Gordon, Rick, and Terry. And even in that very sparse format, it's such a powerful song lyrically and musically. It just has the elements that make it just one of Gordon's, I think, most stark ballads. The original recording, and as you can probably tell, I've heard many versions of the song, the original recording just has a quality to it. You can see this happening. And I think that's some of the best songwriting that there is. It's something I do for a living is paint pictures with words. Uh, I tell stories, and that is what Gordon does so well with this song. He's telling a story, but he's telling it so poetically that at the same time he's telling it, you're not just following the story, you are in it emotionally, and it's got your heart. But the swelling of the strings, the trebly sound of that version, it always put me in a northern city, even though at the time that I heard it, I had only lived in the South and had rarely seen a northern city. It always put me in the cold. It always put me in a place that I had never been. We'll 
be right back to our conversation with Chris Davis about the last time I saw her. But first, a word from a podcast partner or two. Attention listeners, the oldest record store in Toronto wants to buy your record collection. Cops Records is run by and for collectors. They know just how much heart goes into compiling your favorite music. Whether the vinyl belongs to you, a loved one, or a friend, they'll bring their 40 years of experience and sensitivity to every transaction. If you're thinking of selling a collection, visit Cops Records, that's cops with a K, dot C-A, or visit Cops at one of their three locations. Sanjay! Sanjay, look! Yes, Zach? Wait, what's that thing you're holding up? It's a time travel device. We can use it to go back to the past and watch movies. But we already do that on our podcast, Oldie But a Goodie. No, on previous episodes, we were pretending to time travel. Now we can do it for real. Cool, so we can really go back to like the 80s or the 90s? No, 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 Sanjay, you're thinking too little. I mean, we could go really far back. Like we travel back over a hundred years into the past. Oh, but Zach, that's so far in the past. Those movies would be old. Yeah, but, well, our show is called Oldie But A Goodie, so we should we should probably do old movies. Oh, that's a good point. That's right, folks. This year on Oldie But A Goodie, we're going back further than ever before. Wait, who are you talking to? We're starting in 1920s, doing one movie from that year, and then moving up to 1921. And we're continuing that until the year 1969. <laughs> Nice. Join our time-travelling journey through cinema by subscribing now to Oldie But A Goodie out wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, that's not kind of Productions podcast. You know, that's a beautiful way of saying it. And you talked about the whole idea of painting pictures with words. And as I heard you say that, I thought this is a very cinematic song, in addition to all the other things that we've said about it, that you could see this fitting into a romantic movie. I don't know what city I would put myself in, but I would definitely put myself someplace other than where I live. So there's that sort of removal and observation of the art that's going on there. What to you would be the best setting for you to listen to this song? Or is this a song that you could listen to absolutely anywhere? Is there a certain place, time, activity that is conjured up for you whenever you listen to this song? Or could you just listen to it any old time? Like most of Gordon's music, it's been with me ever since 1997, when I first got that United Artists collection. I've listened to it in so many different kinds of settings, in so many different places, in so many different locations, different cities where I've lived. The first time I listened to it, was on a boombox, uh, you know, because back in the 90s, that's what people had. And, or ghetto blasters. As yeah, the ghetto blasters. I, uh, I was actually outside working on a car, and I was not as struck by it at first, but then I put headphones on and listened to it later while I was laying there in my room. And that, to me, the first time hearing it like that was an ideal setting. But I'll say I've listened to it in cars. I've listened just about everywhere. I mean, I've listened to it on an airplane. I guess I haven't listened to it in outer space because I haven't been yet. But if I do go like uh, good old Bill Shatner, I've got Gordon Lightfoot with me for sure. Well, if you do go into space, please tell the people that you're with to listen to Carefree Highway Revisited. But uh, 
Of course. I think for me, it would be the sunset or as the sun is very late afternoon, right before the sun goes down, because that is if you're heartbroken. And I have to think that this entire song is undergirded with heartbreak. Sunset is a terrible time because you realize you're going to be facing this night alone without the person that you're in love with. And it's something I think we can all relate to. Even if you're in love with someone and that person doesn't know that you're in love with them and you have this prospect of I'm going to be alone and I don't know what to do with myself and I'm broken because I'm not with this person. That is probably the time that I would want to. So I can see myself watching the sun go down either where I live now in California or really any place while I'm watching the sunset. Just an excellent point. Gordon's music has been with me through many heartbreaks and it's helped me through difficult situations and relationships that didn't go anywhere, relationships that failed. And it's been with me through relationships that have made it. And the relationship that I'm in now with my wife, Gordon's music is still here. That's maybe why I'm thinking, you know, more universal settings, but you have such a fantastic point with the setting of the sun. And also, you know, I think when I was talking about how the song kind of makes you feel a little bit of that cold temperature, maybe you're thinking the sunset in late fall or early winter, something like that. Because I always think of winter when I hear the song. There are parts of it where I think of usually towards the end of the song when we're talking about a misty night and things like that. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. Yeah, it, there's certainly a sensory aspect to what the lyrics are describing here. Chris, do you have any sort of angle on how the song got written and the reason I'm asking is that I've looked in Nicholas Jennings' wonderful biography of Lightfoot, and it's only mentioned three or four times. And in none of those does Jennings talk about how the song was written. I can tell you that Lightfoot has commented on it. We'll get to that in a second or two. But I'm wondering if you have an angle or any information on how, where, why Lightfoot wrote this song. I don't have any proprietary information, but putting together some things, like you said, from the Jennings book, and then again from uh, Richard Harrison's book, Once Upon a Red Eye, from the touring that was going on at the time, it seemed to me that Gordon and Brita, his first wife, were still in and out of their relationship at the time. If you read about some of the events that went on at the time, she was still very much a part of the marriage, but in some ways, it seems like Gordon had checked out. If you think about other songs that were written around the same time, like Affair on 8th Avenue, it was an indication that there was a great instability in the marriage. And on the other hand, if you read, I can't remember whether it's in Jennings' book or whether it's in uh, Richard Harrison's book, but uh, around that time, John Stockfish was being dismissed from the band, and Brita actually had a hand in doing that. You know, it was something where she was still a part of the organization, a part of the marriage, a part of the business. But at the same time, emotionally, Gordon was maybe in other places. He was facing the dark temptations that come with touring and being lonely and having many women having the opportunity there and being a human being out on the road. So I can only imagine that this song would stem from some of those experiences and the on-again, off-again nature that seemed to be 
what was going on in their marriage at the time. He did say something to that effect, and I'm quoting here from the songbook liner notes about this song, and he said, it's about the breakup of a marriage. In a way, you're predicting what's going to take place, and then it happens. In some sense, you play the scene out in your mind, and after the fact, it hits you how close you were to the mark. It makes a little tough to perform sometimes, but not tough enough to keep a great song down. In a way, it covers the same ground as if you could read my mind did years later. And both of those are centered around his first wife, Brita. And I knew that she was very involved in getting Rick Haynes to replace John Stockfish, because that is mentioned in the exact same areas as the first references to the last time I saw her. So that probably is as good a record or a chronicle of how the song got written as we're likely to get. We'll be right back to our conversation with Chris Davis about the last time I saw her. But first, a word from a podcast partner or two. Are you a fan of true crime, cults, conspiracies, and all things sinister? Then tune in with me, your host, Steph, every week for a new episode of the Sinister Story Hour. You can find the Sinister Story Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Books Boys! Every month, Dean and PJ tell you all about the books they've been reading and make some recommendations from our old favorites, plus surprise call-ins from authors to talk about the works that they're writing, original music, prize giveaways, and more. That's Books Boys on BooksBoys.com and all good podcatchers. Books Boys. Get it. Buy it. Books. So let's dive into the lyrics here, and they're some of the most beautiful lyrics he ever wrote. The last time I saw her face, her eyes were bathed in starlight and her hair hung long. So they were out under the stars. It's nighttime. There's enough light from above, maybe from the moon, to see her eyes. And he said, and her hair hung long, which to me kind of implies that she's since trimmed her hair or maybe she's put her hair up since then, but it's certainly not the same. The last time she spoke to me, her lips were like the scented flowers inside a rain-drenched forest. So what she was saying to him must have been just absolutely beautiful because it was being emitted from lips like these. So what do you think? Am, am I on track so far with what I've interpreted here? No, I really think even though it's all interpretation is kind of subjective, I think you're right on there. I think about the lifestyle that Gordon and Brita probably were leading at the time, at least from the photographs that I've seen. Maybe she put her hair up to go to parties and their hair was long whenever they were together and whenever they were talking. This is a song that's chronicling a very intimate conversation the end of a very intimate conversation at the end of a relationship. He is also putting this in some sort of context because he's saying that was so long ago and we don't really know how long it was, but it must have seemed like it was such a long time ago. 
could have been a week, could have been months, we don't know, that I can scarcely feel the way I felt before. And he's thinking about her, but it's all thought. If he had come across like a piece of her clothing or if he'd smelled her perfume or tasted something that she always enjoyed eating, those kinds of memory triggers would have brought out something even more descriptive, even more profound, maybe to the point where you couldn't have put it into a song. But it's just a a mental recollection of what it was like. And if time could heal the wounds, I would tear the threads away that I might bleed some more. And the thing I think of is that he would be willing to go through all of the pain again, just to be with her again and to experience the whole thing all over again, because that's how much he misses her. That's how much she meant to him. That's how much a void has been created by her absence. Any thoughts on that? Yes. I think it's one of the most eloquent couplets that he's ever written. If you think about a similar sentiment, but I'd trade all my tomorrows for a single yesterday to be holding Bobby's body close to mine. That was maybe a more simplistic and country type of way of expressing the exact same sentiment there in Christofferson's lyrics. But with Lightfoot, what you get is something that is incredibly sensitive. I would tear the threads away that I might bleed some more. You'd give some of your life's blood. You'd give some of what you are, what you're made of, to be able to experience just some of even the painful parts of the relationship again. And to me, that is an extreme. I know this sounds like a college kid here, but man, is that deep. <laughs> that, yeah. that, is, that, is, that is really, really heavy. The last time I walked with her, her laughter was the steeple bells that ring to greet the morning sun, a voice that called to everyone to love the crown she walked upon. This is somebody who he says who she's walking on, but she might as well be two feet above the ground. This is how happy she is. She's encouraging people to live. She's just a kind word for everyone, just oblivious to everything else except her own happiness and the person that she was with. And all of us, I think, have been through that. When you get to be a certain age, you've been so infatuated with someone, and maybe it truly is being in love, but it's certainly infatuation with someone where you're thinking to yourself, I'm absolutely in another world and I don't care. Like I say, I think we've all felt that. And then he says, those were the good days. And I thought that was kind of an abrupt transition. What do you think about that couplet that I've just said? Well, I'll say this for it. I have a weekly gig. I play at a, a pizzeria every Saturday night. And if I had the musical ability to actually perform the song the last time I saw her and I were to try to do it, I don't know if I could make it through that. I don't know if I could make it through, you know, without tearing up. And even though this is a happy part, talking about, you know, her obvious joyful assets, it understates or carries the weight of the loss so heavily that, uh, yeah, I think it's that and tearing the threads away are the most powerful parts of the song to me. I don't think I could perform this and I would love to try, but I don't know if I could perform tear the threads away that I might bleed some more without breaking up. I don't think I could do that. Then I think either one of those are as evocative as anything else in this song. So I agree with you there. 
The last time I held her hand, her touch was autumn, spring, and summer, and winter, too. Beautiful line, and I don't know what it means. What do you think? It's obviously conjuring up the seasons, but why is he making that statement that it's all four seasons at the same time? If you think about the four seasons all together like that, it indicates completeness, completeness of the year. It's everything that the year is. And I think he's probably saying there, and maybe this is a stretch, but I think he's saying, she completes me. She is my everything. Uh, her touch was everything to me. Autumn, spring, and summer, winter too. That her touch brought everything to his life. And that's why the loss is so big. So if he had said her touch was infinity, it would have been a little bit more awkward, but it would have kind of communicated the same thing. I feel, yeah, I think you're right there. I think infinity, I mean, thank goodness uh, it's Lightfoot who wrote this and not me, because I don't know what I would have put there. I'm an English major and I analyzed a lot of poems and I just feel like this is a metaphor for the completeness that he felt when he was with her. I was raised by an English professor. So, you know, whether I wanted to or not, I got to analyze a lot of things when I was in high school and college. And so I hear where you're coming from with the choice of words that he had. The last time I let go of her, she walked away into the night. I lost her in the misty streets. So she couldn't be seen again. This is the part where I really think of myself in a northern city or maybe winter or maybe both. Maybe he's talking about the literal last time he saw her, which was on a foggy night. Now, we don't know the exact breakdown of what days or weeks that he and Britta had a fight or broke things off. Or if we do know, Gordon's not saying so in this song, of course. But that, to me, is the image that signals the beginning of the end of the song because there is a certain finality to it. He's lost her. He can't see her. And then he develops that in the next lines. A thousand months, a thousand years, when other lips will kiss her eyes, a million miles beyond the moon, that's where she is. And it's creating this idea that she is irrevocably gone. You will never be able to recapture her. And he can't see her. He will never see her again. And other men will be falling for her or loving her, and that probably makes the pain that much more exquisite. Did this evoke the same kind of thing for you? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, first off, there's some musical staccato going on in this part. If you listen to it, the guitar is being plucked, and uh, I don't know exactly what that is meant to evoke, but it does make you feel something just a little bit different. You were talking about this being the beginning of the end of the song, Maybe there's a little bit of finality to it in the way that it's being played because there's so many different elements and different kinds of pop songs that can signify things. I just think of that plucking, that staccato there, getting toward the end. But there is nothing more painful to a breakup than the anguish of knowing that someone else has what you want. Someone else has what your heart desires. And I've felt it. I know that Almost anybody who's been in love with somebody else and the relationship hasn't worked out has felt it. Maybe this is what makes this song so incredibly powerful is the layers of relatability. You know, I love the way you said that because it is such a personal song, but it's so personal that everyone has loved and lost. 
can relate to. And that can be the 12 year old crush, or that can be the 84 year old man who lost his wife after 65 years or something like that. The last time I saw her face, her eyes were bathed in starlight and she walked alone. So the imagery that we had at the top of the song, but now she's by herself and it blends in with the idea that she's walked away from him that we saw in the last stanza. If you're walking away from someone, at least initially, that implies that you're walking away by yourself. You're no longer with the person that you were originally in love with. And maybe on the other side of that mist, she will be with someone else. The last time she kissed my cheek, her lips were like the wilted leaves upon the autumn-covered hills, resting on the frozen ground. The weather is turning. Autumn is associated with death, or when things that were alive and vibrant in the spring and the summer are now dying. The world is beginning to cover up a little bit for the changing of the seasons. So I think he just uses that metaphor of autumn so perfectly without overdoing it. What can you add there? I don't know that I have much to add because you said that so well. When we talk about just poetry in general, we have patterns to go by. And yes, I think about Robert Frost almost, you know, the miles to go before I sleep. For some reason, it evokes that a little bit. Maybe because I saw a film one time about Robert Frost and there was so much snow in the little documentary. But it uh-huh. makes me think about, you know, death and the bleakness of the seasons and how they do signify their metaphors for the human season. And if we're looking at somebody who's uh, at the end of a relationship, they may feel so much closer to death personally and emotionally than they actually are just because the relationship is ending. And it just doesn't feel like you're alive anymore. I think when relationships end, we feel like something inside has died. And in some cases, that is a literal death when there's a real tragedy going on. And it is the sentiment that you talked about. I mean, the idea of dying or feeling like a part of you has died. You mentioned Robert Frost and the literary comparison I have is not quite as good, but It's from The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, and Howard Pyle wrote, So passed the seasons then, so they pass now, and so they will pass in time to come, while we come and go like leaves of a tree that fall and are soon forgotten. The seeds of love lie cold and still, beneath a battered marking stone, it lies forgotten. And this is to finish the metaphor that we've talked about of death. It's the metaphor of a a headstone or a tombstone in a graveyard. The stone is battered, which means it's probably been there for a long time. It's not as easy to read. And it lies forgotten. That's the love that they shared, and it's not personified anymore. And then the song ends, and it's just absolutely beautifully done. Any other observations on the lyrics before we talk a little bit about the music? I would say, you know, if you want to get a different perspective on the lyrics, listen to another version of it, like Glenn Campbell, for instance. Sometimes, I don't know, if, if you want to uh, see it in, in a different filter, maybe. It's good to uh, to hear somebody else perform it. Maybe somebody who does it in a, in a slightly different key. Even these things can help bring out parts of it that you've never really heard or listened to before. That's an excellent point. That wraps up part one of our conversation with Chris Davis about the last time I saw her. Even on a budget, 
Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. We'll see you for part two in a couple of weeks. Bye.